I'm going to pray and then uh, we will dive right into this. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for the gift of salvation that is freely given to us. We thank you that you have drawn us to yourself, that you have initiated this process, Lord, of saving us from our sin, that you have declared us righteous according to the works of Jesus Christ, according to his sacrifice in our place. We thank you that you have given us the Holy Spirit to fill us and equip us to grow in holiness. And we thank you that you've given us a sweet promise to look forward to one day when we will be with you face to face. Our faith will be turned to sight and we shall praise you forever. Would you please use this time tonight to sharpen our understanding according to your word? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So we've been going through the doctrine of uh, salvation in the Baptist faith and message. Uh, we come in, in salvation. We looked at uh, regeneration, justification. Tonight we'll look at sanctification and glorification. So if you've got your Bibles with you, please open up to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. While you're turning there, I'll make some brief comments about kind of the structure of the Baptist faith and message. In, two, in, in 2000 and in 1963, they added this section on glorification that surprisingly to me was not there in the 1925. So the 1925 was very detailed in a lot of other aspects of salvation, but they did not address glorification, which I thought was interesting. It's kind of been backwards um, to the rest of that. So I went ahead and looked forward in the Baptist Faith and Message in 1925, thinking that maybe they just had it somewhere else. They talk about the end times. Uh, they talk about the final state a little bit, but they didn't really have this spelled out. And, and I don't have a good explanation as to why. Um, I have some speculations, I guess. But uh, the 2000 does have a section on glorification. We'll look at that in just a moment. I want to look at um, starting right here at the top of your paper, section C. And I've kind of split it here. I'm pulling from two different parts of the, of the article here. It just says sanctification is the experience beginning in regeneration by which the believer is set apart to God's purposes. Then a little bit further down in the 2000, it says growth in grace should continue throughout the regenerate person's life. Now, Romans chapter 6, I believe in the Baptist faith and message they reference the entire chapter, and I think that is right. Romans 6, the whole chapter, I think, can apply to unpacking what sanctification is. We're not going to read the whole chapter together. I would just like you to follow along with me as I read verses 15 through 19. Listen to this description here uh, about the Christian's life in relation to righteousness and turning to righteousness. He says, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And, having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification." So when we look at our article here in the Baptist Faith and Message, 
it's, it uses this phrase, set apart. The believer is set apart to God's purposes. Set apart is the definition for the word holiness, holy, to be set apart. So sanctification is our process of becoming holy. We're becoming sanctified. We are becoming different from what we once were. Here is a simple way to understand sanctification. Sanctification is the process of being freed from sin and conformed to Christ. Sanctification is a process, being freed from sin and conformed to Christ. So there are things that I am constantly putting off, and then there are things that I'm constantly putting on. I'm putting off those things that are less like Christ, that are making me unholy. I'm putting on those things that are like Christ. If you want a good um, chapter of scripture for this, you could write down Colossians chapter 3. We see good imagery there. If you are raised with Christ, and then it goes on for verses, uh, seven or eight verses, put to death then these things to your previous life. Put on then as God's chosen these qualities. So sanctification is a process being freed from sin and conformed to Christ. It's also a little bit different than justification in that it's a cooperative effort where both man and God are contributing to sanctification. So God is bringing about sanctification in us, but that doesn't mean that we have no role in our sanctification. We make willful decisions and we take actions in being sanctified. And while justification happens to every believer, sanctification can look different in every believer. I think I talked about this maybe some time ago with Don Whitney's book, possibly. But sanctification can almost be thought of as like a chart or a graph where we're slowly rising up in holiness. Some of us have this tremendous growth right out the gate. Some of us, it's more steady, and then it goes up and up. And then whenever you die, you kind of go straight up to holiness, and that's glorification. But this process for one Christian could look real slow, real meticulous. For the next Christian, maybe it's a little bit quicker or a little more pronounced. Everyone has the growth, though that might vary from person to person. That's because there's this man element in our sanctification. I would argue that it could go down sometimes. Yeah, I think that we can have moments where we fall into sin and are not repentant. And uh, we're ignoring the God-given boundaries of discipline. And, and we have a moment of decrease but I think that it will inevitably. It's kind of like when you look at a lot of our political analysis these days. You see these charts that like go up and down. If you look up close, you see this decline. You're like, oh, this is going to be terrible. Well, then when you kind of zoom the chart out and look, you see that it's a steady level of growth. You just had a little momentary lapse. Yeah, I think that that's a, that, 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 that happens. Um, also, uh, in this, I don't, uh, I'm not 100% sure why they, if they even notice this or, or if, if I'm just seeing something here. But it says sanctification is the experience. Uh, I'm not sure if I would have put that word there because uh, when I hear an experience, I think of something that happens and then it's done. Uh, sanctification is a continuous process, and they kind of hit that here when they say that it should continue throughout the regenerate person's life. So I think, it's, I think what they have is fine. It's not wrong. I might not have worded it that way, but it's important to recognize that just because it says it's an experience doesn't mean that we have sanctification and then we're just done with it. It doesn't happen anymore. It is constantly happening in the believer's life. We're constantly working towards that. Okay? It's also important to notice that we never arrive at complete 
holiness in this life. It is constant growth that we never really arrive at. We'll talk about that a little bit more here in just a moment. So this next section here uh, is enabled. uh, The believer is enabled to progress toward moral and spiritual maturity. Now, this word maturity uh, used to be the word perfection. I believe it was the 25 and the 63 both had perfection there. And then the 2000 changed it to maturity instead of perfection. Um, I would imagine that it's probably just to reiterate that we will not be perfect this side of heaven. Um, additionally, there's some Christians that teach a type of Christian perfectionism. And I didn't realize how, how prominent this was until I came across uh, some individuals who believe this, got to looking online. And a lot more Christians believe this than I realized. But there's a group of Christians that believe that if you are saved, you will reach sinlessness this side of heaven. And the fact that you continue in sin demonstrates that you don't really know the Lord. Now, I think we all probably recognize how dangerous that slope really is, okay? But there's a significant group of people that believe and teach this, and it can be very destructive, especially for Christians coming into this. It can be destructive for their mental well-being and their understanding of what sanctification actually is. So the Bible does not teach Christian perfection, but I will reference a verse that I've seen used for this. You can turn there if you like, Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. Um, there's a few other verses that are pretty prominent with this idea that are used. We actually might see one more a little bit later, I think, in one of our other verses we're going to look at. But uh, turn to Matthew 5:48, and, uh, and, and I actually learned something here. I'll share with you here in just a moment looking at this. Matthew 5:48. So this is in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is talking about all these different uh, traits that mark someone who belongs to the kingdom. And he says, you've heard it said, but I say to you. You've heard it said, but I say to you. And then he gets to this last section here. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. So we are aiming to be like God in our love for others. Well, then at the end of this, in verse 48, he says, you, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. So Jesus says this, this mysterious phrase, well, wait, so I'm supposed to be perfect like God is perfect? Well, God is perfect like in that he is sinless. So that, that's what we're supposed to be if we belong to the kingdom here. Now I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 5, verse 14. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 14. Now, neither one of these verses should be taken in isolation. My reason for taking us here to this verse is to show you something about the word that we just read that's translated in Matthew 5, 48 as perfect. This word also pops up here in Hebrews 5, 14 in the Greek, but in our English it reads different. Some of your English translations may actually use a different word, but the ESV doesn't. So Hebrews 5, 14 says this, Solid food is for the mature For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. This verse, first of all, is just a great verse in unpacking what sanctification is in part. We are training in part our powers of discernment. 
through constant practice that we might distinguish between good and evil. So this happens as we train our minds through God's word. We are putting it to constant practice and asking questions. Well, I wonder how God feels about this. Well, what does God's word say about this? And we're forcing ourselves to think about these things. So our powers of discernment are being trained. This solid food, it says, is for the mature. That word mature is the same word that we just read in Matthew 5:48. that there is translated perfect. It's the word teleos, which comes from the word, the Greek word telos, which is just the end goal. In Christian apologetics, there's an argument called the teleological argument. And that argues that the end of all things, there is a design that we can see in creation. And everything that's made has a purpose. If there was no God, we should not expect to find purpose. But there is purpose and everything is heading towards an intended goal. That goal, that telos, is what we see here translated sometimes as perfect. Translated sometimes as mature. Sometimes it's translated complete. I think we'll see that here in just a moment. So the idea isn't necessarily that we are perfect and without sin, but that we look at God our Father and we aim to mature to look more like him. So as I want my children to mature, I don't expect Kristen to just suddenly be just like me. She is looking at me as an adult and saying, okay, these are the things worthy of imitation. I'm going to do these things. And unfortunately, these are the things that my parents do that are not worthy of imitation. And I will learn not to do those. We don't have that with God the Father. We look at him in perfection and say, okay, all that's worthy of imitation. And that is what our sanctification is, is growing in that. So the word there is for mature. We are aiming towards something even though we know we won't reach it. And I think that in Jesus' teaching, he's using a pun there, which is a common teaching device. Um, but we could talk about that a little bit later. Um, so we've got all these other verses of Scripture that seem to indicate that sin is a continuing reality in the lives of Christians. Paul in Romans references this inner struggle where the things that he wants to do are not the things that he finds himself doing. And the things that he wants to avoid, those are the things that he finds himself doing. The apostles weren't made perfect this side of heaven, and we won't be either. Okay, so um, the words here, moral and spiritual maturity, okay, moral, spiritual maturity. Moral is pretty easy for us to comprehend. There's sinful acts and then there's good acts. We want to not do the sinful things. We want to do the good things. Uh, Moral decision making. It's easy for us to comprehend. Do good. Don't do bad. That's moral. Spiritual points to the fact that sanctification, holiness is more than just moral change. Sanctification is more than just moral change. It's more than just being a better person. Now, a lot of times this is how we think about it, but that's only part of the truth. A non-believer can become a more moral person. They can do things that are more in alignment with how the Bible tells us to act. In fact, there's many non-Christians that recognize the Bible is certainly a book of wisdom. If you live your life according to the moral teachings of Scripture, you'll do well. But sanctification is more than just a moral change. Uh, for this one, you can turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Yeah, this is one where we're going to see that same word 
that uh, teleos, now translated a third different way in Scripture. Here it's completion in the ESV. 2 Corinthians 7, 1. And it says this. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So there's that process of bringing holiness towards our end goal, completion in the fear of God. So this verse describes a cleansing that includes defilement of body and spirit. The spiritual maturity that we seek includes the intellect, the emotions, and the will. That is, I am training myself to think differently. That is part of my spiritual transformation and holiness. I am training my desires. I want to desire the right things. I don't know about you, but I have tried to like white knuckle force my desires to change, and that's very difficult. I can't really do that. That is something that the Holy Spirit has to bring about in me as I am pouring God's word into my mind. He changes my desires. So intellect, emotions, and then ultimately our will, the determined decision to act differently. Okay, That's part of our sanctification. So it's more than just doing right or wrong. It's a transformation of the whole self. This um, final phrase for sanctification here says, through the presence and power of the Holy Spirit dwelling in him, that is in the believer. So the last verse that we just read, 2 Corinthians 7, 1, emphasized our role in sanctification. This line reminds us that God has a role in our sanctification. The Holy Spirit makes us into a holy people. That is one of his primary ministries. It's literally built into the name. He's the Holy Spirit. He makes us into a holy people. If you think about it, it doesn't make sense for someone to say, I'm filled with the Holy Spirit, but then to be pursuing unholiness in almost every area of your life. That does not make sense. And the Bible does not have a category for thinking in these terms. One of his chief ministries is making us into a holy people. Now, that's not to say that we won't have times of grieving the Holy Spirit or disobeying the Lord. Yes, those times will come, but there should be a pattern of increased holiness. Here you can turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Second Thessalonians 2. Verse 13 is what we're going to look at. Second Thessalonians 2.13. And here's what it says. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. So sanctification is by the Spirit and an indispensable part of our salvation. The Bible a lot of times will talk about our having been saved and then our being saved, kind of a past tense, present tense. The having been 
is the regeneration and justification. That's that moment when I am saved, I'm converted, I'm declared righteous, and now my sanctification begins, boom, right here. My being saved is sanctification, and then there's a future time when I can say I will be saved, and that's our glorification that we're going to look at in just a moment. So sanctification, salvation, can be thought of in a past, present, future type of sense, and that's kind of what we see here in this verse. It is a process that the Spirit is involved in in playing out our salvation. So this last section here, glorification. Glorification is the culmination of salvation and is the final blessed and abiding state of the redeemed. So glorification is when we will receive our glorified bodies. What does that mean? If you want to write down 1 Corinthians 15, 35 through 49, 1 Corinthians 15, 35 through 49, you can also write down Revelation 21, the whole chapter, and I would even go a little bit into chapter 22, maybe five verses into chapter 22. I think it's how many it is. Revelation 21, all the way through to 22, and then the first five verses there. Now, 1 Corinthians 15 is, I believe, probably one of the best and most complete descriptions of the final state of the believer regarding the glorification of our bodies. Revelation 21 is also good, but that passage is more about heaven and those realities than it is our glorified bodies. But we're talking about in glorification, we're talking about the glorification of the believer. We become glorified. Now that doesn't mean that we are worthy of praise like God is. It means that something happens to us. Our bodies will finally be free from the stain of sin. We will no longer walk in sin. We will no longer have sinful temptations or lusts or desires because we have finally been saved from that. That is what God is accomplishing in us now. He is bringing us forward to this point when finally sin will be no more. I tell you, for me personally, as I go through life and realize the heinous nature of sin, it is very deceptive. It's very destructive. And I find myself more and more thinking, okay, this is why sin is so terrible. When I was younger, I couldn't quite, and, and I think part of it's because I wasn't saved at that point, but there were times when I thought, I just don't quite understand why that sin is, is so bad. I, I don't quite get it. But the more I go through life, and I know some of you older saints will be able to confirm this, you realize, oh, I see. This is why the Lord has said this or done things this way. Not maybe for everything, but some things for sure. And I think that this life here, when we get to heaven, it's going to be this crescendo, if I'm using that right, of realization, oh, this is what God was accomplishing. I get it now. And we're going to be just in a state of bliss as we're with our Lord forever, free from sin. Okay, So that's what glorification is. Justification, I'm counted holy. Sanctification, I'm becoming holy. Glorification, my holiness is finally complete. That's kind of the process there. Now, some application. We've got a few different ways that we're going to apply this uh, tonight. Almost said this morning. We've got a few different ways. First, I'm going to give you two spheres of sanctification. Then three means of sanctification. Then five factors of sanctification. They'll all be pretty quick. 
So here are the two spheres of sanctification, and then I'll explain. Number one is private, and number two is corporate. So two spheres of sanctification. There's private, and there's corporate. Now, both of these relate to, correspond to, our spiritual disciplines. I left a stack of books on the back table here. Uh, Spiritual Disciplines, Don Whitney. We went through that on Sunday night some time ago. If you weren't here for that and you don't have a book on how do I grow in holiness, how do I grow as a Christian reading God's word and praying, I cannot recommend a book highly enough. I love Don Whitney's book there. He wrote another book that uh, I haven't read that I'll be reading within the next few weeks called Spiritual, and this one looks much more dated. This one is uh, Spiritual Disciplines Within the Church. So that's going to be the private sphere. This is going to be the corporate sphere. What are some things we do as a church to help one another grow in holiness? If you'd like to look at this, you can come look at this afterwards. Uh, You can't take this one yet because I'm going to be reading that one soon. But you can come look at that. So there's private and there's corporate. In our individualized culture, I think we probably struggle with the corporate aspect of sanctification more than the private aspect of sanctification. Okay, And what's interesting is that the New Testament, more often than not, speaks of sanctification as a corporate process rather than individual. When I was doing my study for uh, 1 Corinthians 16, I remember looking where it says to stand firm. And there's all these different imperatives, these instructions. And in the English, you never really can you never really can tell, is it singular, is it plural? And I remember going to the Greek and seeing, oh, it's all plural. So he's talking to the whole church. This isn't an individualized. Well, then you start flipping through the scriptures and you realize how many of these commands are, and they're not all plural, but a lot of them are. It's an overwhelming number. I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 10, Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 through 25. This is just a single verse, but I think it's exemplary and it represents a pattern that we see. Most of the time that the scriptures talk about sanctification, it's a corporate process, which I just think is just incredible. It's amazing to me. Something that I've missed out on for I think for a long time. Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. So here's what it says. Uh, we have this um, I saw this passage the other day. I don't remember who said this. Referenced as the lettuce patch, which I've never heard before, but let us, let us, let us. I think that's interesting. Well, you see here in verse 24, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, all the more as you see the day drawing near. I've always referred back to this regarding our meeting together as a church. It's important that we meet together. It's commanded in Scripture. Right before the command to not neglect meeting together, what are we to do in the meeting together? We consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. That is corporate sanctification. We're thinking, how can we stir up one another to do the things that God has asked us to do? We see this all across the New Testament. Believers are told over and over again, encourage one another, sharpen one another. I think it's something like 59 times 
in the New Testament. The words one another is just one word in the Greek. So you can do a little word search thing and pull up. It's in there about 100 times. Of the 100, 59 of those times have to do with an instruction, an imperative. It's a command. You are to do this towards one another. So I think that the corporate aspect of sanctification is vital for us. But we live in a culture of mind your own business. And frankly, this is completely foreign to the New Testament idea of what a church is and what a church does. We are each other's business. We are all Christians who are seeking holiness. And none of us is going to do better without all the rest of us. We need each other to pursue holiness. I need someone who can see past my blind spot. We all do. We all have these blind spots that, well, I looked. I didn't see anything there. Well, you got a blind spot. You can't see that well. But I can see it well, and your other brothers and sisters can see it well, too, and we're worried about you. We need people like that. We need an atmosphere where we can have those conversations. Now, we have to be careful. I need to add another word, I guess. Not to judge others by our own conscience, but simply to exhort one another with God's word is the whole point of that. So two spheres, private, corporate. Here are three means of sanctification. Three means of sanctification. Number one is scripture. Number two is prayer. And number three is fellowship. So scripture, prayer, and fellowship. Scripture, prayer, and fellowship. I'm getting these... From this phrase, uh, and this isn't in the 2000, this is in the 1925, they reference the means of grace. The Holy Spirit uses the means of grace in bringing about our sanctification. That's a common phrase that maybe we don't use as much in some Baptist circles. Some do, some don't. There's different types of means of grace, and I guess maybe this is why it was removed, is it can be confusing. You can think, okay, well, the means of grace, that means that these things are how salvation happens, and I need... I know that there are some denominations that teach, I need regular infusions of God's grace. The initial grace I received at salvation isn't enough. I need continued grace. So I think that maybe the the confusion led them to remove this. But historically, what the means of grace are is it's just the means that God uses to give us the grace of sanctification, growth and holiness. These are the means that God uses, scripture, prayer, and then fellowship of the church. Now, there's some lists that expand that, and they add multiple others. But almost every list is going to have these three key foundational, uh, the common means of grace is what they're referred to as. What this means is that God uses these to give us Christian growth. Okay. Now, the first two, scripture and prayer, those can both be private and corporate. So my personal Bible study and my group Bible study, my personal prayer, corporate prayer. Fellowship is necessarily corporate. The, the, the fellowship doesn't happen in a private in a private sense there. So that's two spheres, three means of sanctification. And then I'm going to give you five factors of sanctification. Now, this is not original to me here. I got this model from a guy named David Pallison. Uh, he wrote this book, uh, How Does Sanctification Work? He's a Christian counselor, uh, talks a lot about sanctification and that sort of thing. He's written some other books that are really good. He's got a devotional um, – 
uh, it's on my desk. Come see me later, and I can recommend it to you. It's really good. So in this book, um, and in one of my classes, they use this also, he references five factors of sanctification, and he pictures it like a house. So if you want to exercise your artistic abilities on your paper, somewhere down there in the blank, you're just going to draw a house. If you just want to draw a box like this and then put a triangle on top, you can draw your little house. And I'm going to give you these five factors of sanctification to kind of help this imagery make sense. So go ahead and draw your little square down there. You can do it. Draw a little triangle on top. And we're fixing to label the parts of the house here, okay? So right underneath the bottom of the house, right under the bottom floor, if you want to draw a rectangle for a foundation, you can do that. And inside of that, you're going to write God. Foundation, right underneath the house, you're going to write God. At the very top, if you have room in your roof, great. If not, just right above the roof, I want you to write Scripture. Scripture is at the top, above the roof. God is the foundation. Scripture is at the very top. It's a roof. So, <laughs> so now you've got two walls on the side. On the left side or the right, it doesn't matter, one side or the other, not in the house but outside the house. On one side, you're going to write life circumstances. Yeah, it's, it's, it's outside the house, though. It's okay. You can just write trials if you want. If you want a short word, write trials. They're not all trials, but if you want a short word, you can write trials. Life circumstances. Now, outside the other wall, you're going to write other people. Other people outside the other wall. So you've got God as the foundation. Scripture is the roof. One wall, life circumstances. The other wall, other people. And then right in the middle, you're going to write my heart. My heart. This represents you. So now let me explain what we're looking at here. God supports the entire process of our sanctification. He is the foundation. Okay, Anywhere we go in our sanctification, we must walk upon that foundation. Once we step off the foundation, we are no longer in sanctification. Okay, Now the roof is God's revelation to us. So just like the foundation shows us everywhere we can walk... The roof is what guides us and protects us as we walk upon God's foundation. So once we walk outside of the boundary of that roof, we are losing protection and we are no longer on the right foundation. So that roof and that foundation parallel each other. The roof is always over the foundation and vice versa as we walk around. The walls are what help to keep us in bounds. That's our life circumstances a lot of times that's suffering, trials. Not always. Sometimes it's good life circumstances. I would argue usually not. Usually it's some type of suffering that we go through. And then the other one would be other people. This would be our church, our family, other Christians that we're in relationship with, other wise individuals. Now, sometimes we could have unwise individuals. And they say, no, trust me, we need to leave the foundation for just a moment. Okay, And that's how we have these kind of down parts in our sanctification. But other people help keep us, in our life circumstances, keep us underneath the roof and on the foundation. But ultimately, inside your own heart is what brings about that desire change. You are choosing where to walk on that foundation, when to leave that foundation, and when to come back to that 
foundation. Of all of these factors, they all play a role in our sanctification. Of all of these factors, the walls usually feel the hardest. They are usually the least comfortable. Sometimes we have our eyes closed and we walk into a wall and it hurts. Sometimes we have our eyes open and we're stubborn and we try to run through the wall and that hurts. Okay, The walls usually are the hardest part of our sanctification. Why is that? Because they're restrictive. The foundation doesn't technically restrict me. I can choose to step off and on the foundation. The roof isn't technically restrictive. It should be, but I'm free to walk in and out. The walls force me to stop, and that's hard. Their design is to keep us from leaving the foundation and to keep us underneath the roof. But we like to wander, and this is where suffering and other people enter the picture. Our church family comes alongside of us and says, no, look, you need to turn around. You do not want to leave this foundation. Our life circumstances, the Lord uses suffering to teach us. This is why you don't want to do these things. I believe that the restrictive nature of the walls is one of the reasons why that some people do not like the idea of meaningful membership. We're being honest. We just don't like boundaries. I don't like someone telling me what I can or can't do. But we have to acknowledge that this is part of the means of our sanctification is brothers and sisters in Christ. We're not perfect. I'm not perfect. We need people to come alongside us and help us. That's what God has designed the church to do. These boundaries may be hard, but they're helpful. And it's similar to suffering. Why don't we like suffering? Because it's hard. (laughs) It's painful. Every time we go to the doctor, Gabriel's first question is, is there going to be a shot? He, he, he doesn't want he wants to get better. He doesn't want the shot. Why? Because it hurts. Suffering is painful. It's hard. So we don't like it. But suffering is a means for our growth. And that's been hard for me to accept, if I'm just being honest. Suffering is how we grow as Christians. I would I'm convinced that there is not a better way, unfortunately. I believe the scriptures attest to that. So I tried looking up this quote because uh, there's another book I have here, and then we're going to be done. This is by um, Timothy Lane and Paul David Tripp. I have many books by Paul David Tripp. I have very few by Timothy Lane. Love uh, Tripp, love uh, a lot of the stuff he's written. In fact, one of my favorite books is a book he wrote on marriage called What Did You Expect? Phenomenal book. Uh, So this book is on how people change, talking about sanctification. And in this book, they have a quote that is very similar. And so I thought, oh, this reference I'm looking for is in their book. But I think I'm wrong. I think it's actually in Whitney's book where he references this. But someone references a football coach named Tom Landry. Okay, famous football coach. I don't. I'm not into football, so I can't tell you who he was coached for. I don't know. You're so young. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Okay. (laughs) but i remember this but i remember this analogy the analogy stuck with me and so i had to look up i remember the quote went to google typed in the quote pulled up time later i'm like okay that's who it was i put it down i think it's in whitney's book and, and i think it might be very early in the book but anyway tom landry 
said this about being a football coach. The job of a football coach is to make men do what they don't want to do in order to achieve what they've always wanted to be. Make men do what they don't want to do so that they can be what they've always dreamed, what they always have wanted to be. This is like what our sanctification is. And this is what those walls exist to do. Maybe we don't want the walls to be restrictive, but you know what we do want? To be on the foundation. We need the walls for that. So here's the line from from Lane and Tripp's book. They're talking about suffering and trials in life. God is simply taking you where you do not want to go to produce in you what you could not achieve on your own. God is bringing about something in the hard times of life, our suffering and other people in our lives. So both our trials and our church are common examples of the hard path of sanctification. And sanctification is hard, but this is the only way that we're going to grow. I'll pray and then we'll be dismissed. We can hang around and talk more if you'd like, but I'll pray for us and we'll be dismissed. Lord God, we thank you that you love us, that you do not save us in isolation, but you save us so that we might be with other individuals, Lord, who love you just like we do, who, who are all, Lord, so, so desirous of growth and, and holiness and sanctification, but who are also all weak and in need of help. So, Lord, please continue to stir us through the power of the Holy Spirit who lives within us, that he might guide our hearts and protect them from desires that might lead us astray, that he might open our minds and direct us in the truth of your word. Lord, help us to be receptive to correction from others in our body as, as we try to grow in holiness together. Give us boldness, Lord, to maybe approach someone who is living in sin and, and not growing in sanctification in an area that they might, not that we might be wrong or right or, or to be a, appear a certain way, Lord, but just that we want to all grow in holiness together. We are imperfect people, and we do not have a good track record for having these conversations, but we know that you have designed it this way, and so we trust you and ask you to equip us to have these conversations with one another so that we might grow stronger with one another in love and be strengthened as a gospel witness in this church. Thank you for the promise of glorification in the future when our bodies will finally be made whole. We will finally be freed from the stain of sin, free to worship you and your holiness and splendor for eternity, Lord. We look forward to that wonderful day. Until then, continue to grow as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.